Hi, I'm Brian Hedinga, and welcome to Discover the Word and a special best of episode to end the year. But uh, first of all, since the week begins with Christmas Day, let me say to you, Merry Christmas. And that's what the rest of the group wants to tell you, too. Hi, I'm Bill Crowder with Discover the Word from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Merry Christmas. Hey, this is Daniel Ryan Day from the Discover the Word team at Our Daily Bread Ministries. Just wanted to wish you and your families a Merry Christmas. I'm Elisa Morgan from Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries. Merry Christmas from all of us at Discover the Word. Hey, y'all, this is Russell Berry from the Discover the Word team and Our Daily Bread. Just want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Hi, this is Marty Hahn from Discover the Word. Merry Christmas. They are the friends that you study with on Discover the Word, and you'll be hearing more from them later in the podcast. But to begin this best of episode, we're going to go back a bit further into our history and our archives to when Haddon Robinson and Alice Matthews were a couple of the main players in these Bible studies. They, along with Mark, were the Discover the Word group from 1990 through 2013, 23 years of studying the Bible together around the table. And at Christmas time, one of those years, they connected on the phone with a friend of Haddon's, scholar and author and missionary and longtime Middle East resident, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, for what would become a couple of our all-time best-of Christmas conversations. And they talked about several misconceptions that we may have about Christmas and the Christmas story that Ken wrote about in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And despite their concerns that this might ruin some things about Christmas for us, uh, I found that it really enhanced my understanding and made Christmas even more meaningful. And so to begin this best of Discover the Word episode, uh, let's start with two of our most memorable Christmas conversations with Haddon Robinson, Alice Matthews, and Dr. Kenneth Bailey. Ken, first of all, welcome to Discover the Word. Thank you. It's my privilege to be talking with you. And secondly, I'm going to insult you and say you sound like the Grinch that stole Christmas. <laughs> That's I too think, bad. No, no, how, no. How, how about the... How about the prophet who enriches Christmas story? <laughs> I like that better. Yeah. It's obvious that you have some problems with the traditional way we've understood the birth of Jesus. Yes. What are some of the problems that you see? Well, initially, what we have to do, particularly when we come at well-known stories like the birth story, is that we've got to separate in our minds the text from our traditional reading of the text. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. The text must always criticize, refresh, renew, revise, retool my understanding of the text. The text is the inspired Word of God. My understanding of it is my faulted human reading of it, and that's always got to be open for revision. I always told my students back when I was teaching a seminary that we must keep our interpretation of Scripture tentatively final. <laughs> I like that, tentatively final. What I mean final. by that is uh, that today I have to obey, I have to be obedient, I have to live out my faith. So it's got to be final because I've got to act on it. I can't wait till I've read one more article or one more book. 
but it's got to be tentative in the fact that we're all on a journey trying to get at the depth of the mystery of the Word of God. And so I'm going to suggest some revision of our understanding of the story. I'm not revising the scriptural story itself. I'm trying to bring it to clearer light. Yeah, well, my problems are as follows. You know, I lived 47 years in the Middle East and taught New Testament in Egypt and in Lebanon and in uh, Israel-Palestine and in Cyprus. And so the problems are as follows. First is time. When Joseph gets to Bethlehem, the text says, and this is correctly translated in the King James, and many of our translations since then have kind of muddled the water, while they were there, her days, plural, were fulfilled. Well, now that means the last stages of Mary's pregnancy took place after she arrived in Bethlehem. We think the baby was born 15 minutes after they hit town. <laughs> and that's not in the text. We picked that up from a novel written at the end of the second century that has survived because it was a very popular novel, and we call it the Apocryphal Gospel of James. And in that, we have the child is born, you know, the labor starts on the way, and Mary's getting more and more anxious. and It's born almost immediately as they get there. But that's not in the text. So if they have time, and if we're talking about the last stages of her pregnancy, which that means a couple of weeks at least, probably a month, is Joseph so stupid that he can't arrange anything in that time? Then the second thing is that Joseph is of the house of David, and that means he's one of the royals. He can say, I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Methat, son of Lawi, son of Melchi, and, oh, yes, yes, your grandfather and my grandfather used to play games together in the street. Well, you people went up north, didn't you? How are things getting along? Every home in town is going to be open to him, particularly because he's a descendant of David, and this is the city of David. So how is it possible that he, no one takes him in? I mean, it's just absolutely unthinkable. And then the third thing is that Mary has relatives in the next village. Elizabeth. And she's just visited Elizabeth, and she was welcomed. And the text says that Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judea. Well, the hill country of Judea isn't very big, and by the time you get to Bethlehem, I lived just outside Bethlehem for 10 years, and so I know, uh, you're within about an hour or an hour and a half donkey ride of any village in the entire hill country of Judea. Hmm. So if Joseph can't find anything, he's got time, why doesn't he go to his wife's relatives? And if he fails to go to his in-laws, his name is going to be mud for the rest of his life. I that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, you've got your in-laws there, mm -hmm. and Elizabeth and Mary are friends, and she's just spent time with her. Why don't you turn to her? And then the peasant society anywhere in the world always welcomes a woman about to give birth. I tell people here in Pennsylvania, think Amish. An Amishman shows up at the door of another Amishman and says, I've got my wife out here, and she's about to give birth, and we need help, and can you help us? And then the Amishman says, get out of here. Go use the barn. I don't have time for you. <laughs> unthinkable. That's a good Absolutely analogy. Absolutely yeah. unthinkable. And then finally, the shepherds. The shepherds come. They visit the Holy Family, and then we're told that they go home praising God for 
all that they had seen and heard. And the word all includes the quality of the hospitality. Hmm. So if they are Middle Easterners, which they are, and Middle Eastern sense of hospitality is very, very uh, high, and they're very proud of it. This is from the story of Abraham and his guests from then on. The shepherds will stick their nose inside where Mary and Joseph are, if they are in a stable, and will say, what are you doing here? Well, there wasn't any space, and this is all we could get. And the shepherds are going to go through the ceiling and say, may that mean old innkeeper go to you-know-where, and you come home with us, and our women will take care of you. They would have moved them in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> Just there's no ifs, ands, or buts. They would have moved them in the first 30 seconds. The idea that the shepherds would walk out and leave them there, I mean, barns stink. There's manure on the floor. It's unthinkable. So uh, <laughs> they, they uh, aren't in a barn, and they are not out by themselves. What do you think it's saying? What the text is talking about is it's talking about the fact that first century simple peasant homes were two rooms. One room was where the family ate and slept and where they entertained their guests and where they ate their meals. And then there was a lower level, about four feet down, at the one end of that large family room, where they brought in the family cow and the family donkey and a few sheep every night. Or, if it was on a level, we're not sure from archaeology exactly when the lower level started to go into simple peasant homes. It could have been on the same level, in which case there would have been very heavy beams of wood that would have blocked off that section where you bring in the family cow and donkey and sheep the last thing at night and take them out first thing in the morning. And then there's a second room. And the second room is either on the roof or it's at the end of the house, and it's the guest room. And you use it only when you have guests. Otherwise, you don't use it. And the word in the text in the New Testament is kataluma. Kata means down, and luo means to set loose. So this is where you, the place where you spend the night. And that's the word that they used for that extra room. We know that because that same word, kataluma, shows up in the Gospel of Luke in the story of the upper room, where Jesus tells the disciples, go into the city of Jerusalem. You will see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and then when he goes into the house, you go in, and you then ask the owner of the house, where is the kataluma that I may celebrate the Passover? And he will show you, says the text of Scripture, a large upper room furnished. Aha! Kataluma, for Luke, means a guest room that is a part of a private home. So... So far, you have told me it was not a Motel 6 or a Holiday Inn, and you've also said that uh, this place that they were was not out in some drafty cave right. with animals, but it's a part of a person's home right. that would be perfectly suitable for a woman giving birth and perfectly right. suitable for a couple needing a place to live. Yes, exactly. And the key is that word. It's not a word for an inn. Luke has a word for an inn, and the word is pandochion. 
upon all and docheo to receive, the place that receives everybody. And that word shows up in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where they take the wounded man, he takes the, to an inn. the Samaritan to an inn, and that's the word pandochian. Very common word. It's used all across the Middle East. So Luke has that word in his vocabulary, but he doesn't use it in this story. He uses a word which means a guest room attached to a private home. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Let's stop and pick this up in our next conversation. <laughs> so far, you are destroying my Christmas story, but you're enriching my understanding of the New Testament. And that's what you're about. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so in just a moment, we will hear part two of this conversation with Ken Bailey talking with Haddon Robinson and Alice Matthews about some misconceptions that may have worked their way into our understanding of the Christmas story. Uh, these were a couple of the best of Christmas conversations we had years ago here on Discover the Word that uh, we really wanted to share with you this year. Of course, Haddon and Alice both retired from Discover the Word in early 2014, and Haddon passed away from complications of Parkinson's disease in 2017. And Ken Bailey passed away a few months before Haddon in 2016. We're so thankful for the time that the Lord gave us to spend with them. Their impact on us was mighty. And before we get to the second half of this conversation about Christmas, I want to share with you a, a couple of Christmas greetings that Haddon and Alice did. Now, for many years, they put together these short insights for Christmas for radio stations to use in their Christmas programming. And so as kind of a Christmas bonus for you this year, here are a couple they did back in 2004. And first of all, here's Alice. Hi, I'm Alice Matthews from Discover the Word. Back in 1963, my husband Randy and I, with our four children, moved to Paris, France to begin our ministry there. And as Christmas approached, I planned to carry out many of the holiday traditions that our family had. But I quickly discovered that we had moved to a country with very different traditions. Instead of putting up our Christmas tree weeks before Christmas Day, we learned that the tree was to be trimmed late on Christmas Eve after attending church and before eating a huge meal called the Réveillon. When I shopped for our traditional Christmas food, I had to substitute a duck for the turkey, and I found no substitutes for cranberries or pumpkin for pie. And while we Americans tend to think that Christmas ends at the end of Christmas Day, we discovered that people in France actually give and receive gifts on each of the 12 days of Christmas. And the climax of the holiday season comes on January 6th, which is called the Feast of the Three Kings. Christmas traditions do differ as we move from one country to another. But we learned that it isn't how we celebrate Christmas that really matters. It's why we celebrate that day. Trees and food and gifts are fun. But we celebrate Christmas not for them, but to remember the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you celebrate this Christmas, have fun with your traditions, but celebrate what really matters that God came in the flesh so that we could be part of his family. Then you'll really have a Merry Christmas. 
Hi, I'm Haddon Robinson of Discover the Word. And I was thinking that on that first Christmas centuries ago, the angels announced that unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then a band of angels came to sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men and women with whom God is well pleased. The angels left, but the song went on. John the Baptist picked up that song. They were able to kill John the Baptist, but they could not kill the song. The apostles joined the chorus. They sang with all their hearts. And then 10 of the 12 of them died vicious and violent deaths. They could murder the singers, but they could not destroy the song. And throughout history, in different times, different places, different people have sung the song. Great cathedrals or storefront churches, people sang, they've come, they've gone, but the song continues. And today, you and I, for our short time on earth, get to sing the song of praise. And if you sing it, sing it with all your heart. And know that when we're through our part of the singing, the song will continue until that day in the future when angels and people from every tribe and nation will gather to sing again. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. This uh, Christmas, sing the song and sing it with all your heart. As I said, their impact on us was mighty, and we are so thankful for the years that they helped us discover the Word. Okay, so now let's pick up this conversation that Haddon and Alice had with Dr. Kenneth Bailey about some misconceptions we've picked up about the Christmas story and how looking at the texts of Jesus' birth through Middle Eastern eyes can help us understand some things in a fresh way. Welcome back to Discover the Word, Ken. Thank you, Hatton. Tell us what you have been telling us so that we can be clear as to where we're going to go. All right. In the first program here, we talked about the fact that there are five important reasons why our traditional perception of the Christmas story is in error, in that Joseph can have almost every home in the entire village open to him because he's of the family of David and his wife has relatives in the next village. He can find a place to stay. So we made clear that the kataluma, which we have translated in, really means a guest room attached to a private home. Okay, and then we're going to talk a bit more about that inn and uh, how that's going to fit into that story and our understanding of Luke chapter 2. Okay, so if we establish the fact that the simple village home has one large room that's the kind of the family room where all the family lives, and then they have a little room at one end or on the ceiling, kind of like the prophet's chamber with Elijah, is for guests. The text of Luke says that she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the kataluma. Either the kataluma is full or the kataluma was too small, really, to provide for the birth of a child. 
because you're going to have the midwife there and you're going to have the other women around, and it's just too small. I think personally that probably there were other guests who'd come for the census and it was full. So the family that welcomed Jesus said, no problem, you take the family room. Now, the family room, because the animals are brought in at night at one end, either on a lower level or blocked off with heavy timbers, there are mangers either cut out of the floor or small ones for sheep that would be down on the floor level. So the family is not anticipating the birth of a child, and they don't have a cradle. So no problem. All you do is take the manger, and you clean it up a bit, and you lift it from the area where the animals are brought in at night, and you put it in the middle of the family room, and you put a blanket in it, and it's perfect. It's just the right height, and it's just the right size, and it works perfectly. That phrase, you will find him lying in a manger, was a critical phrase for the shepherds, because the shepherds at that time were considered an unclean profession, and they were one of the lowest rungs of the society. And when the angels say, you've got to go to Bethlehem to show honor and to worship this child, they're going to think to themselves, they won't let us in, we're shepherds. Mm. They're going to say, tradesmen to the back door, please. The angel then says, you will find the child wrapped. Oh, that's what we do with our kids. And he will be lying in a manger, always in a one-room family home like ours. They'll let us in. It's going to be okay. He's not in a palace. Hmm. A critical component in the account. And that's why they felt free to go. They felt free to go. Okay. And that's why when they walked out, they said to themselves, we can't do any better. This family is taking good care. Everything is there. Mary has all the help she needs. The midwife helped with the delivery. And everything is clean, and it's warm, and it's cozy, and they got food, and there's nothing we can do for them that this family that has welcomed them in has not done for them. And by the way, before I forget, your crash set, everything <laughs> is fine. Leave your crash set exactly the way it is, only change the roof. Mm. It's not in a barn. It's in a private room. <laughs> in, in your mind, have it that this is a private home. And, of course, in Matthew... The wise men come to the house. Of course, we knew they were in the house anyway. Mm -hmm. They were in the house from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the wise men? <laughs> yeah, where are they? Uh, tell me about them. Okay, the wise men, whether they come from the Arabian Desert, which is, I think is the case, or they could have come from Persia, either one really doesn't matter. And they come up over the Mount of Olives, and the first thing they see is the wonderful spectacular, uh, shining, brilliant, overwhelming new temple that Herod had recently paid for and built. And it's not quite completed, but it's up and running. And it's 35 acres, and it's the largest sacred enclosed space in the entire Greco-Roman world, and two and a half million square feet of polished marble are over that space, and the sanctuary itself is in the middle, and it's got a front on it that is 90 feet high, that's 10 stories, and 90 feet wide, and it's covered with plates of solid gold. Mm. And over the top of it is a vine, and Josephus, the historian of the period, says the clusters of grapes 
hanging on that vine, which was made out of solid gold. The clusters of grapes were the size of a man. So you're talking about a cluster of grapes that is five feet tall, and it's solid gold. No wonder the Romans wanted to conquer it. And that's why you would want to go there to find out a king. Right. And so here comes the wise men over the top of the mountain, and Josephus said it looked like a crouching lion. The sanctuary itself was the body, and this wonderful, magnificent front on it looks like the mane of the lion. And it was so bright that in the daytime, you had to shield your eyes because it was so bright it hurt your eyes, the shining of the sun on all that gold. You go in to the large courtyard, and you want to go in and worship, and there are signs there which say any non-Jew who crosses beyond this wall is responsible for his own death. Hmm, that's a welcome, Matt. Yeah. You're not allowed in. You've come a long way. We don't care. You've come here to show honor to the one who is born, this new prince. But we're not going to let you in to this house. It was called the house. The temple sanctuary was called the house, to go up to the house, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the Bible. So they meet mean old Herod. He's a sly character. And he says, you know, go off and find the child when you found it. If I come back, let me know, because I want to go and worship too. Of course, we know the story. They disappear from Herod, and the star reappears. It takes them to Bethlehem, and we're told they went into the house, and they worshipped. And there wasn't any two and a half million square feet of polished marble. And they are welcomed, and that's the place where they bow down and they worship. And Isaiah chapter 60 talks about all the wonderful things that are going to happen when the temple is rebuilt. And it talks using the language that we find in the story of the birth of Jesus, particularly as related to the wise men. A great light will shine over Jerusalem. There's darkness over the land. The glory of the Lord will shine. Gentiles will come because of the light and the glory. They will be thrilled, and the wealth of the nations will come to Jerusalem, and God's house will be made beautiful, and all of that stuff. Hmm. But when they got back, and they rebuilt the temple, the people who remembered the old temple wept because it looked like a chicken coop. It was nothing compared to the old temple. Hmm. Herod comes along hundreds of years later and says, I will give you a magnificent temple that will fulfill the great vision of Isaiah about the rebuilding of the temple. He does it, but only the Jew is allowed in. The Gentile who shows up, if he dares to stick his nose in, they're going to kill him. One needs to understand the wise men, one needs to read Isaiah 61 to 17 and the prophecy of Haggai uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and see that the promises that are given there that are understood to be promises for the city of Jerusalem are fulfilled in the birth of the child. Those mm. promises are shifted to the child. And the language that is used to describe the birth of Jesus in Luke and the language that is used to describe the story of the coming of the wise men are very carefully written, describing events that happened. We're not making up fables here. 
but they're written up in a way. The scenes that are selected are so that the learned reader would be able to say, aha, we have now a new temple. God's Spirit no longer dwells uniquely in a building, but is to be found in a child. And that child and his body are now the focus as to where we can draw near to the holiness of God and can worship. Ken, that is a beautiful description that has really enriched the passage. Thank you for being with us. We have enjoyed our conversations that have to do with Christmas. It's my privilege. Thank you for inviting me. There you have a couple of our more memorable Christmas conversations from the past here on Discover the Word, going back quite a few years to when Haddon Robinson and Alice Matthews spoke on the phone with Dr. Kenneth Bailey. It's one of our best of Discover the Word conversations that we're featuring this week. Now, as I mentioned, Ken passed away in 2016, and of course, Haddon passed away in 2017. But that was a great memory of a great conversation about Christmas misconceptions. And if you'd be interested in reading more of Ken's perspective, I would encourage you to get a copy of his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Now, I tell people that the first part of this book about the Christmas story is worth the price of the book. And actually, there's a lot more in the book. It's from IVP called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's on our highly recommended list. Check it out on your favorite online bookseller, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Well, for the rest of this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, we are now going to wrap up another year of studying the Bible together by going back to look at some of our favorite Discover the Word conversations from 2023. Now, I'm not going to lie. I think when we get to the end of every study we've done over the past year, that I've learned something and I've said, you know, that was a good study. That was worth doing. But for the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to pick out three conversations that the staff here at Discover the Word felt were real highlights. And if you missed these studies along the way, well, you should make it a point to go back and listen to the entire series. And so now let's go back to the first part of May and a study we did with our friend, Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck. Now, he is always one of our favorite guests to have at the table with us. And during that week in May, he previewed for us some of the locations that he and our Our Daily Bread Ministries film crew would be going to to record material for the fourth and final installment of a video series called The Holy Land. As Jack says, place always matters. No one would know me unless they knew the place from which I come. At least they wouldn't know me as well as they could know me unless they understood my home, the place that has shaped me. And I would say exactly the same is true of every single Bible story. Stories have places. Bible stories have homes, just like people do. And you won't know those stories well unless you know those places. And so in this conversation, Jack took us to Samaria and told us about some of the good, really good things about that area of the Holy Land, and also some not-so-good things that happened there. In fact, I think he called Samaria a good land, but a good land gone bad. And so let's listen to this best of 2023 conversation that Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day had with Dr. Jack Beck. When I first 
kind of joined the team. I remember we invited this guest to come on to talk about biblical geography. And I remember like thinking, what is that? And then as Jack Beck began to lead us through that series, it was just fascinating how he led us to see how the story of the Bible is told through the land of where the Bible takes place. So we're excited to have him back again to lead us through. Yeah, I remember that time you just brought things to life so well that our imaginations were filled uh, with uh, the pictures of what you were describing for us. And so with Daniel, I'm just really delighted to have you back with us, brother. And I always like to give the disclaimer at the beginning of these conversations that I am completely geographically impaired and I have no understanding (laughs) of direction. So please continue to flesh it out visually for me so I can maybe follow along behind you guys. (laughs) (laughs) What a privilege it is to be back in the room with, with all of you. I love being around the Word of God and studying it with others. And uh, it's a really great gift to me that you have an interest in the thing that interests me most, which is the way in which God has chosen to shape the big story and my story geographically. So uh, I'm hopeful that as we continue to unpack the way in which geography shows up in the Bible, that new insights will be uh, forthcoming and that, that folks will hear the Lord in a way that they hadn't heard him speak before, because some of what God has to say to us, he's chosen to say geographically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Where are you going to take us for this first conversation? The week that we're looking at here is all built around the experience that we hope to bring people in season four of the Holy Land with our Daily Bread film. And uh, season four, we're going to go to a number of new places, places we haven't been to before. And the first of those is going to be the District of Samaria. That's where we're headed. What do you guys know about it? I just recently found out the Samaritans still exist, which I felt terrible for not knowing that. But for some reason, I just assumed that their story kind of ended maybe around Jesus' time or something like that. And then I was at the Museum of the Bible, and they had a whole display on the modern-day Samaritans, which blew Mm. my mind. And of course, I think about the woman of the well and her exchange with Jesus and his earthly ministry and how through her... Samaritans came to be followers of Christ, so many. Yeah, Yeah. and what I think of when I hear it is um, twofold. In Old Testament, I think of Ahab and his conflict with Elijah, the prophet, in Samaria, and ultimately on Mount Carmel. But I also think about that very famous story that Jesus told where he flipped the script on his listeners who expected the hero of the story to be Mm -hmm. a Jewish Mm -hmm. person But when Jesus told the story, he shocked them all by making a Samaritan the hero of the story. And and that that still, to me, is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of Samaria-related stories. Uh, The one that we're going to zero in on to try to unpack the region a little bit, which will give insight into all of the others, is the one that you mentioned, Bill. And that is the story of Ahab and Jezebel. And our text is going to be 1 Kings 16.30 is the text that we're going to be looking at. I'd love if someone would put that out in front of us. So Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Great text, right? (laughs) You just got to love a text like that. Well, what I'd like to do is... First of all, connect that language to the region of Samaria. 
a region that I call the good land. I always try to give each of the regions that we study a little phrase that is a memory hook for us. And uh, the region of Samaria is really the good land. And there are two levels to that that we can explore. The first is the sort of physical side of that and then the spiritual side of that. Because I think when we get the fact that the story of Ahab and Jezebel is a Samaria story and lay it against what we're about to unpack first, it will come out in all of the horror that we may have been missing when we didn't treat it as a geographical story. So let's start, first of all, by thinking about the district itself. It's located within the core of the country in the central mountain zone. So I got to give Elisa some help here. I'm teasing you, of course. (laughs) That's awesome. And me. Go for it. (laughs) It's got to be north of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's going to be south of the Jezreel Valley. So we're going to be in the middle of the country, but not only east to west, but north to south, kind of right there in the center of it. And I got to tell you guys, of all my places I visit in the Holy Land, it's one of my favorites. Hmm. Hmm. Why? 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 That? Yeah. Because I'm an outdoor guy. <laughs> oh, okay. Right? And there is no place in the modern land today that looks as pristine and rural and uh, wonderfully lush as that piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, if I had to build a house, I think I'd build a house somewhere mm-hmm. in that area today. But we got to go back and look at it through the ancient eyes and think about the things that were most important to people who are living in the past. So let's, let's see if we can assemble a list. What are the things that would be high in your list of desirability if you were to choose a place to live? Water. Fresh water, yeah. Boom. You got it in Samaria. Great rainfall totals. What else do you need? Well, you need the ability to, to grow food. And we have a second winner. <laughs> we, we've got really strong agricultural land because in the central mountains, in a lot of places, the valleys tighten up and it's really hard to have much level land to grow food on. You need to build terraces like in Judas Hill Country to the south of Samaria. But in Samaria, the land sort of opens up really beautifully in a way that creates this big open basin farmlands. So you've got those two things. Let's keep going. What else do you got? Well, in ancient times, you would want something that would give you a sense of security. And there's just enough rise in the terrain to give you that security. I got one more. Transportation. Yeah. So if I can grow a surplus of food here, it means I have more than I need for my local needs. I can export food, create uh, income from that, and I've got great transportation corridors that go out into the larger world. And uh, if you put all of that together, the security, the agriculture, the transportation network, there's no place in the Holy Land that checks more boxes than this region of Samaria. That's why I call it the good land. But I call it the good land that got even better because it's the very first place that Abraham and Sarah came when they came into the land in Genesis 12. And it was here at Shechem within the region of Samaria that God said to Abraham, this land of Canaan, this is the land that I've promised to give you. And the promise of salvation got intimately bound to the land for the first time in this place. Yeah, well, because it was not just being promised a blessing to him and his descendants, but to the whole world. And so that means if it's tied to that piece of land in that way, that's what makes it good news for all of us around the table and all of us who are listening as well. But on a personal level for Abraham, it must have been almost a relief just because when he left Ur the Chaldees and then he left Haran, the Lord said, go to a place that I'm going to show you. And so now all of a sudden God says, here it is. So he's home. 
It may not feel like home yet, but it's home. Yeah. Wonderful sense of home. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting what I'm sharing, right? That Samaria is a good land that gets mm-hmm. even better uh, by the time of King Ahab. There's just no other space that's going to give you all of these wonderful advantages. But he squanders it. He squanders it. And remember that verse that we read just a few moments ago, he tumbles into this really awful, awful state. And that has to do, I think, with the fact that King Ahab simply was a man of great greed. Economically, he had all of the advantages, but he wanted more. And his dad, Omri, had actually begun to set the table for all of this by redirecting trade through Samaria that was going east of the Jordan River and then using the uh, supply network that Phoenicia had around the Mediterranean Sea to take those goods and move them to the international markets. Ahab was positioned as the middleman to take advantage of all of that. But you know who came along with the deal, right? Yeah, Jezebel. Right. Yeah, Jezebel. And if there's one thing that Jezebel was attached to, it was dad's worship of Baal. Mm-hmm. And she convinced Ahab that to be as economically successful as he wanted to be, they had to worship Baal as well. And so within their capital city, within Samaria itself, they established a Baal worship sanctuary, a temple, and thereby really making that deity, that pagan deity, rather than the Lord, making that deity their prime national deity. He took this good land that had all of the advantages and had it go bad. And I think it's, it's founded in that idea of greed that simply accompanied Jezebel coming into the land. Mm-hmm. Jack, as I'm looking at this scripture, it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than anybody before him. I don't see the word greed. And as you're like breaking down worship of Baal or Baal, I'm struggling to make the connection between that and greed. Are you bringing that from just the study of ancient peoples and all of that? Or is there a place in the scriptures that it describes that greed or help us kind of make that connection? Because all all I see is the word evil. Yeah, fair connection, right? So the way I build it, that connection is this, Daniel. This is a Samaria story. And so it's a story of a person in a land that offered everything you could you could want. You don't need any more. The Lord has given you what you need. You've made a choice to go, I'm not satisfied with that. I want more. And so we create this large economic program that is going to bring more, but that large economic program comes with a consequence. And that is you are going to be attracted into the worship of Baal as a consequence. And that's the great evil. But the question is, where did that great evil come from? How is it that Ahab looked at this land and said, I want more? How is it that he ended up moving from that to the worship of Baal? And I think it's a consequence of that greed of wanting more than the Lord had given him in this good land that landed him in this place where he reached out and spiritually compromised his own integrity and the integrity of his country by worshiping Baal. There's another place later in Ahab's story where we see a specific case of greed, though, in their jack. That's right. At Jezreel, I think, is what you're thinking, right, Bill? Naboth's vineyard, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Naboth was a man who had a vineyard. Ahab had everything, but he wanted that. And he sulked because Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. And finally, Jezebel had Naboth killed so that she could present this vineyard 
to Ahab. And, and I think that, you know, whether we can say that that's emblematic of his larger greed that you're describing, Jack, or not, we do know that in that case, greed motivated him in a destructive way. And I want to pitch in here as well the language of Paul in First Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we begin to nurture dissatisfaction with what we have, this can get legs that runs in places we don't see from the beginning. I don't think from the start, as Ahab was developing this economic development plan for the northern kingdom, I don't think that he was thinking about worshiping Baal. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that's where it ran. And I think for what it's worth, the same is true for us, right? <laughs> I mean, that there's a cautionary tale here. Uh, we live in a good land, in a land with lots of things that the Lord has blessed us with. Dissatisfaction seems to be just around the next corner, I turn. And while that dissatisfaction with what I have might seem like a small thing, I think this is a cautionary tale of where that can lead, where suddenly my dissatisfaction leads to a desire for more, which leads to greed, and then the horse is out of the barn. I'm not sure where that's going to go or that I can control where that's going to go. I think in the end, right, that this story has got some awfulness to it, if you extract it from its place. But if you make this a Samaria story you start to see a new dimension to his dissatisfaction and um, more problems maybe than I saw before when I didn't see it as a part of the story of the good land. Understanding the way Samaria fits into the story of the Bible really is crucial, isn't it? Dr. Jack Beck was with us that week in May on Discover the Word, taking us to places in the Holy Land and showing us the impact of those places. Yeah, location is always a factor that we need to consider and understand, and having Jack here certainly helped us with that. Also that week, he took us back to Samaria another day to see how this good land gone bad experiences what Jack calls a great reversal when we get to Jesus. And then that week, he also took us to the Negev in the south of the Holy Land. And we also spent some time in Jerusalem. It was a good week, one of our best of weeks of 2023. And so if you missed that particular study in May or hearing that today made you want to go listen again, you'll find it in the archive section of our discovertheword.org website. Some of what the Lord has had to say to us, he has said geographically. It's my hope that as people have the opportunity to engage this series, they will be changed as Bible readers. Yeah, and so just click on Archive up at the top of the page at discovertheword.org and then type Jack's name into the search line. You'll see a number of times Jack Beck was our guest, but this one was from the Holy Land series, and it definitely was one of our best of 2023. And by the way, that fourth and final season of the Holy Land video series will be released uh, likely sometime after April of 2024. The film team was over there in September, just before all the tensions got really severe, and they got some really good material. So look for it on our media hub at odbmedia.org later in 2024. Or you can sign up to get emails about new film releases, and so you'll know when it's out there at odbmedia.org. 
Well, next up in the best of Discover the Word 2023 episode, uh, we go to a great two weeks that we spent back in July with Randy Richards on the subject of letter writing in the first century and how understanding that process can add a dimension to our understanding of all the letters that are included in the New Testament. And so we felt that part of that conversation had to be included in our best of week to end the year. Now, Randy, and in some cases with Brandon O'Brien, has been a guest on Discover the Word a number of times, and we always learn so much and just enjoy having him here with us. And his visit with us this year was no exception. What he taught us about letter writing in the first century, I think without a doubt, enhanced our ability to read and understand the letters or epistles in the New Testament. And if you'd like to listen to the entire Paul the Letter Writer series, I'll tell you how after we listen to this first part of that study. Now, a bit about Randy. He currently is research professor of New Testament at Palm Beach Atlantic University, having recently stepped down from being provost after 16 years in administration. He's been teaching since 1986, originally at a state university and then abroad at an Indonesian seminary. He's authored, co-authored, and edited nearly a dozen books. And one of those books is called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. And that's the one they were talking about in this Best of Discover the Word conversation from earlier this year. Well, Randy Richards, it's so good to have you back. Many of our listeners will remember you from when you and Brandon O'Brien came and led us through conversations on misreading Scripture with Western eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're delighted that you could come back and be with us again. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for letting Mm -hmm. me come. And actually, it's interesting, when I wrote a book on Paul the Letter Writer, One of the things I began with was by realizing that, you know, I think we imagine Paul writing letters more from our modern Mm. Western viewpoint. Mm. Sure. So a good connection to the Westernized idea that we tend to read Scripture through our filter and our culture Mm. rather than the filters and cultures of the day. So. So you want to talk to us about Paul the letter writer? Is that where we're going? Sure. I think it'd be good for us to imagine how did we get a Bible with Paul's letters in it. We talk about the letters of Paul, and they make a huge portion of the New Testament. And how did we get from Paul the apostle roaming around the Roman world to the letters that are in our Bible. I think hmm. that's great. And to also think, you know, there's kind of a contrast between the Gospels and letters and how did mm-hmm. letters come to be viewed as inspired like the Gospels are. Right. It makes more sense when we think about, oh, people would want to hear the story of Jesus. Sure. Mm-hmm. But why would I want to read someone else's mail? You know, yeah. my grandmother called that snooping. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so why would the letter to the Philippians, why would a church somewhere else want to read that letter? Mm-hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why you're here, right? <laughs> well, I think we're going to s- kind of start from the beginning. You know, we talked about modern Western eyes. Most of us imagine Paul writing like our grandfather would have written a letter Hmm. you sit down at a desk now we give them a candle and we give them (laughs) papyrus and a pen and we Mm -hmm. put them in a toga but everything else is the way our grandfather would have written a letter and what i like to say is pretty much everything about that image is wrong Yeah, and today, I mean, we don't even write letters anymore so Mm -hmm. that's that's an old concept even in our time right it really is you know maybe a thank you note but yeah but we imagine he sat down Uh, One quiet evening, started writing to the Mm -hmm. Romans, 
When he finished, he signed it, rolled it up, handed it to somebody to mail off. And that's just not the way the letters went about. Okay, so we're hoping that you're going to explain to us how they did come about (laughs) uh, and that, that it'll somehow give us a better appreciation for the scriptures that God has given us. I think it will help us to really appreciate Paul's letters, the amount of energy, time, even money that went into writing Mm. these. He valued them, and we should value them. Mm. Good. So where do you want to start? Well, let's start with one of his first letters, 1 Thessalonians. I actually think Galatians is the first letter, but we'll start with 1 Thessalonians. That works just fine. And uh, we talk about Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. One thing we need to keep in mind, 1 Thessalonians is first because it's longer than 2 Thessalonians. They arrange letters by length. We oh. would do it chronologically. Sure. So we think 1 Thessalonians was written first, and I would give it about a 51% chance that it was written first. 51. Think, yeah, <laughs> pro- probably, maybe it was written first, but it's the longer one. Yeah. So now all of our listeners already ready to know which one's longer, 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Well, you know, 1st Corinthians is. 1st, mm. 2nd, 3rd John. 1st John's longer than 2nd mm. John, which is longer than 3rd John. So they just arranged them by length. And so 1st Thessalonians, um, it opens up with Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. It's actually a very traditional letter opening. It would be so-and-so to so-and-so greetings. That was a normal way of doing it. They would use the last name in a letter. Roman names had three parts. We'd kind of call it like a first, middle, and a last name, but they would, it would actually be a, a given name, a clan name, which represents kind of your history, hmm. and then a family name. And so Paul, it, that's his family name. His first name We don't know. In Roman life, the first name was so common, they would usually even abbreviate it, which strikes us as the oddest thing. Mm -hmm. But it would be Marcus or Lucas or something like that. The middle name, the clan name, probably was Saul. So Saul doesn't change his name to Paul. Um, His name was something Saul Paul, or technically Saulus Paulus. And so Mm. it makes sense that his clan name would be Saulus because he's from the tribe of Benjamin and the most famous Benjamite in history was King Saul. So it would make sense that would be his name. But Paulus would be the Roman name and probably he's related to the Paul clan that was all over Asia Minor at the time. Okay, so wait, I'm thinking his name was Saul and God called him Paul. Luke is the one who will mention Mm -hmm. Saul also called Paul Mm -hmm. or he'll say John also called Mark. That was the common way to give both parts of a Roman name. Hmm. Luke never gives us all three names of anyone. And Other than Romans, other people in the empire only use the second and third name anyway. So when we look in papyrus letters, they would sometimes have the second and third name, but usually just the third name. So Luke at one point finally says Saul also called Paul, but he does it right after they meet Mm -hmm. Sergius Paulus, who's a kinsman. He's the governor of Mm. Cyprus. I mean, one doesn't normally get to just go in and meet the governor. So Paul has some sort of family connection with him, probably a little bit distant. And he gets a nice hearing, and it's probably Sergius Paulus who writes a letter of introduction for Paul to go up into Asia Minor. He goes up to Antioch in Pisidia, if we want to get a little technical. Mm -hmm. And archaeologists have found inscriptions in that area to lands and estates owned by the Paul clan. 
All this is new for me. <laughs> yeah. So it's very common to start with Paul as a family mm-hmm. name. So we say the letter of Paul, and yet Paul in the letter says it's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And we say, that sweet guy, you know, he just likes to include his friends so they feel welcome. <laughs> well, he does in about six of his 13 letters. So then we think, well, he wasn't feeling as friendly in the other letters. But that's not actually the case. There are no examples in antiquity. When I wrote the book on letter writing, I looked at uh, nearly 14,000 ancient letters, Hmm. Greek and Latin. They just didn't do that. It's Hmm. very rare to have co-writers at all, very rare. Hmm. But when they did, they were co-writers in the letter. So when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, it's Paul and Sosthenes to the Corinthians. Hmm. And there's actually a Sosthenes in Corinth that we hear in Acts. And it, I think it's likely is the mm. same guy. Mm. And so he probably is the one who brought some of the news from Corinth to Paul. And so they're writing back. Mm. So I know it's dangerous to do this, but if we <laughs> pictured ourselves going into a bookstore and looking through a bunch of books and we saw, oh, First Thessalonians and pulled it off on the front, it wouldn't say just Paul's name. It would say, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So you'd have like a very equal, like all three of these guys are contributing to this. I think all three are contributing. Now, Paul is the elephant in the room. He's the boss. Yeah, he's the boss. Mm -hmm. But I do think they bring input into Mm -hmm. the letter. And that sometimes will explain a little bit of the wrinkling that goes on. Second Corinthians has a co-author, Timothy. And it's we all the way through the first nine chapters, about two to one ratio, we to I. And then in the last three chapters, which scholars have long noted have a little bit of a harsher tone to them, it's two-thirds I to Mm one-third we. Mm -hmm. He says, I, Paul, am writing. And we'll talk about that on another occasion, how you got to the end of a letter. Hmm. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that first-person singular versus first-person plural, because it seems like in a lot of the Pauline literature, that it is first person singular. We read I a lot. And I'm wondering how that works if there are co-authors writing with them. Right. Well, first off, we kind of imagine a private setting. So Paul is writing. So suddenly if there's the three of them writing, then all three of them squeeze into a back bedroom to Mm -hmm. try to write together. (laughs) But they didn't write in back bedrooms. Back bedrooms were small, dark, and they were the private part of a old Roman house. In that part of the world, the house was more public than we would normally think of. In the case of a wealthier person, you'd have a family business up front, and then there'd be a large public dining room, some smaller dining rooms to the side, a big atrium. uh, I don't know if you call it an atrium, a courtyard maybe, in the middle where it'd be open to the sky. It'd gather rainwater. There'd be a pool in the middle. That's where people tended to congregate. Hmm. It's cooler and brighter and Mm -hmm. sunnier. And then in the back would be the kitchen and the latrine and the stables. So when Paul is invited by Lydia to her house, Mm. it's not like what we would have where it's like, hmm, how odd. There might be 50 or 60 people living in the household of uh, Lydia. Mm. Mm. So speak to the person who's listening and might be me Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) and is going, okay, this is great. There was a couple other people that maybe influenced this a little bit, but Paul was the main guy anyway. Why should we care that there were more people involved than just Paul? 
even what, if they were involved to a lesser extent. Sure, as we talk about how the letter is written, it will come in more. But we need to imagine Paul's sitting in a courtyard. We'll talk on another day about the secretary that he would mm-hmm. be using. And so when he is talking, there are people standing around to watch. Privacy is a modern Western invention. Hmm. Uh, it was fascinating to me when I moved and lived in Indonesia. I found out they don't even have a word for privacy. Wow. And I thought, how do you not have a word for privacy? And then after a while, I realized, well, there isn't any. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't need a word for it. And so people are listening. They're interjecting. They're interrupting. They're commenting. And you think, oh, that's a little too chaotic for a modern individualist like me. But for them, Paul would never have thought, I need all you folks to leave so that I can write. This would be a group hmm. writing. Paul, Silas, and Timothy founded the church in Thessalonica, so it's very appropriate for them to write back. Mm. In fact, the Thessalonians knew Timothy and Silas better than they knew Paul because Paul had to leave early. Yeah. Yeah, so would you almost say that it makes it stronger to have people like pushing back or throwing in thoughts or something like that? Like I think about times where I've been preparing for a sermon or something, and I end up in a car with someone for a long time, and so I'm like, they're like, hey, what are you preaching about this week? And we start talking through it. And it's amazing how much of that conversation actually makes the sermon better mm-hmm. because they see like a hole in my logic or a verse I didn't think about, or even just they share a story from their life that like that it becomes the illustration. They give me permission, of course, but that becomes the illustration and makes it better. Would you say that's almost what we see? Here? Daniel, I'd say that's exactly what happens. It's kind of counterintuitive to us as modern individualists. You know, I need everybody to leave so I can write. But it's actually more of the process. Not only that, but we'll discover later, Paul's been trying out pieces of this stuff on other occasions. So there's been a lot of input. They've been talking about it and thinking about it. This is not something he dashed off one afternoon. Andy Richards at the table with Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day for one of our best of Discover the Word conversations in 2023 about Paul, the letter writer. We really did learn so much in those two episodes back in July with Randy. And if you'd like to listen to the entire series we did with him, then uh, here's how you do that. Go to discovertheword.org and up at the top of the page, you'll see an archive tab. Uh, Click on that and then type Randy Richards' name into the search bar. Hit enter, and that will take you to all the times that Randy was our guest, including Paul the Letter Writer. I encourage you to take advantage of the archive part of the website and develop your own best of list at discovertheword.org. And also, if you'd be interested in getting a copy of Randy's book on this, just go to any of the online booksellers and look for Paul and first century letter writing. It's published by IVP, and it has a ton of information on this subject. And that book is called Paul and First Century Letter Writing by E. Randolph Richards, better known to us as Randy. Well, I hope you're enjoying this best of Discover the Word episode to end 2023. And if this is serving as a reminder to you of how much you profit from being part of this small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, and you'd like to give a special year-end gift to the ministry as a way of saying thanks and helping us move into another year of studying together, then go to that discovertheword.org website, 
and click on the Donate tab. Thank you. Well, you know, at the end of the year, we kind of get reflective about what time it is on God's clock, you know, where we're headed, and what 2024 might hold for us. And so I think it'll be a fitting way to wrap up this year studying together by going back to March and a series called It's About Time. And so what time is it? Well, that's what the group talked about. Now, it used to be, if you wanted to know the exact time, there was a phone number that you could call. U.S. Naval Observatory Master Clock at the tone, Eastern Standard Time. Eight hours, 39 minutes, exactly. Yeah, we don't need to do that anymore, do we? Our phones, our computers, a lot of clocks in our cars are all synced to display the correct time. But what time is it on God's clock? Well, that's what Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day and Rasul Berry explored back in March in this series about perspectives from Scripture about time. How many times a day do you look at your watch, your phone, the clock on the wall, clock on your computer? It depends on if there's some place I have to be at a certain time Mm -hmm. or if there's something I'm intending to do at a certain time. Mm -hmm. Then I'll check my watch kind of regularly to see how much time I have. I remember one night in particular that I was like just could not sleep well. I think I ended up checking the clock I don't know, 30, 40 times. And every time it was like five minutes has gone by. <laughs> it's just this blinking reminder that I'm not asleep. <laughs> that is the worst. It is bad. <laughs> it reminds me of that phrase, a watch pot never boils. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm impatient and I'm waiting for somebody in my house to be ready. <laughs> mm-hmm. We won't uh, name any we names. We won't name any names. <laughs> or genders. Can, oh, yes, nothing. It's just someone. <laughs> I can find myself having almost compulsively looking at the clock as if, you know, yeah, that's going to change anything. Yeah, and I think one of the funniest times, and I mean funniest is in making fun of myself, is when I'm like driving somewhere and I know I'm already late, but I keep looking at the clock on the dash. Almost hoping that. As if it's going to like roll back yeah. or something. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, all of a sudden I'm on time. But Or you look at the map thing and say, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm driving fast enough that it's reduced my arrival yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Even though it's only seven miles, you know, or something. So you'd have to drive so fast to reduce it, you couldn't. Yeah, I yeah. saw a thing on social media, a young mom with her four kids running down the street, and the caption said, me leaving at 8.45 to get my kids to school by 8.15. <laughs> I would look at the clock a lot when I had to pick up kids' places. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Like I calculate, okay, I have 12 minutes to drive, so I have four more minutes to do this load of wash or, you know, whatever. But today I look at the clock a lot, whether it's on my phone or on the wall or whatever, because my dog thinks she needs to eat all the time. (laughs) I'm trying to train her to wait till a certain hour to eat. And so she'll start her little squirmy, squeaky thing. And I'm always looking at the clock to see if it's time. How many times do you think Brian looks at the clock (laughs) while we're recording (laughs) to make sure that we're within the time of the conversation? (laughs) I bet he looks at it quite a bit, too. And to be honest, we do, too. (laughs) We we want to sandwich our conversation in a bite-sized window for all of our listeners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we do have a clock on the wall and we watch it. We know we need to eventually wrap it up at a certain <laughs> yeah. time. And at that point, Brian thinks it's about time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
taking that understanding of how bound we are, how governed we are by time, we've learned a lot about the concept of time in Scripture. Mm -hmm. And Scripture reveals that God's understanding and use of time is different from ours. We're time-bound, and He's above time, almighty over time. And we've looked at a lot of different passages and, and come to understand that, you know, we can live within our parameters really by trusting that God's beyond and that he can mm. make sense of time where we can't. I want to ask one other question. What time is it in terms of where we live within the scope mm-hmm. of God's mission on this planet? How do our lives invest in that? What time is it for us in the kingdom? Yeah, I think about that phrase when you talked about from the beginning, present and the time to come, right? Or the present and the future and that word, the eschaton, the end of time, right? The end of days that essentially gets inaugurated. Sometimes people think of it as the apocalyptic moment that you see in Revelation is, oh, that's the end of time. But really, when you look at the New Testament, in the fullness of time, yeah. when Jesus, from the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, we are in it. Yeah. You know, we mm-hmm. are in the last days. Some think we're in the last days of the last days, but really, like you're saying, Russell, the last days began with Jesus's coming, and this entire church era that we're in kind of encompasses those last days. And just like when the fullness of time was, He came the first time. It'll be when time is full. Hmm that he'll come the second time. Seems like a whole lot of last days then. <laughs> it does, yeah, last, 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 last day, yeah. And you know, you brought up the fullness of time. I think that's helpful. And in other conversations, I think Daniel's led us into understanding how Jesus came to fulfill the law. It is true that we live in a different era because Jesus did come to fulfill God's redemptive plan. That's already happened. It's been 2000 plus mm-hmm. years that that's happened. So how do we understand what time it is for us, you know, when we still don't see the complete ending of it all? Well, first of all, because he came, we mark our time by that. True. I mean, some people. B.C. and A.D. Now it's B.C. and B.C.E. or before the common era and the common. But historically, Mm -hmm. another time reference, we marked time based on the birth of Jesus when he came into the world as either being before that time or after that time. And I think that in itself is a huge reminder of that fullness of time thing because time itself is marked out by his arrival. Mm-hmm. You have to think about the people in the Old Testament, the, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, where you have the, the list of heroes is that these all died having not received the mm-hmm. promise. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a lot of days too, mm-hmm. you know I mean? Daniel, you said there are a lot of last days in the last days. Yeah, but there were in the Old Testament too. And these all died having not received the promise. And so for us, once again, it's like everything else we've talked about in this series. We have to begin with the premise that God's in charge, that he's in control of this, that he knows when is best, not only what is best. And we kind of just trust him and rest in that. Even if that means that we're kind of frustrated, Yeah, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. even if that means that it causes a lot of questions and doubts in us of, did Jesus really say last days? And mm-hmm. what does that look like? Well, and again, go back to Psalm 90. A day is with the Lord like a thousand years. Well, if you took that and superimposed it on this conversation, 
that meant to the Lord, these 2,000 years are just like a couple of days mm-hmm. because he's not yeah. bound by it the same he's way we He's almighty are. over time. The New Testament talks about this fulfillment that we're referencing in a couple of places. In Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Great. Okay. And then, Daniel, would you get Mark 1, 14 to 15? After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay, but both of these are using the word kairos, and we know that means a specific moment in time, okay? There is like this initiation, mm. as we said, that is Jesus is here, and so we're into a new place. Now, what does proclaiming the good news look like? What does proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven is near look like? You know, mm. I think Jesus explains it in Matthew 28, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He ends with, and I am with you always, to the end of the age. And it's interesting, Elisa, with those two uh, earlier texts talking about the kingdom. Again, we kind of get gunked up in there because we think of kingdom as a monarchy, as palaces and castles and all that stuff. But the word kingdom means rule. Mm -hmm. The rule of God has come near. Why? Because the king is here. Mm -hmm. The ruler is present. Therefore, the rule has come near. Thank you, Bill. That's really helpful. And you asked what our role is in that time. And part of what Jesus taught us to be a part of is bringing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that initiating of the rule and reign of Christ that Jesus brought when he came and then died, rose again, and then empowered his followers with the Holy Spirit is the same mandate, Mm -hmm. invitation that we're called into, which Mm -hmm. is to be a part of the continuation yeah. of that rule and Yeah, an ongoing call. There's one other scripture I want us to look at for a second. It's Acts chapter 1, verses mm-hmm. 7 and 8. And Russell, could you read that for us? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah, that's in the context of the disciples asking Jesus, is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? <laughs> They're still thinking about palaces and monarchies, and Jesus is thinking about rule and rulership. Yeah, and look at the timing of that. Yeah. This is Acts. Yeah. So Jesus died, rose again, He's getting ready to go up to heaven, and they're asking, oh, now we get it. Now you're going to take over and be the king of Israel. (laughs) And it's not just he died and rose again. It's Jesus came, Mm -hmm. Jesus ministered, Jesus died and rose again. Because we're going back to Matthew 4 at the beginning of the ministry. He says, from that time on, that Kairos, Mm -hmm. from that moment on, and then in Mark 1, same time, this is after John was put in prison, the time has come. So that's the very beginning of his ministry. Now we're at his ascension, Mm. and he says (laughs) the same kind of thing. But what's different about this, and I think this is super interesting, is this is the word chronos, which means length of time, okay, a period of time. He says it is not for you to know the length of time, how many last days there will be, (laughs) how Mm. many last, 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 last days. What's for you to do is to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. 
What time is it? Dr. Mark Young, who's the president of Denver Seminary, put it this way, and I think it's a great statement. It is time for the people of God to receive the power of God to accomplish the mission of God. It's always been that time, you know, since this new age that Jesus came to fulfill. So as we, you know, check our watch every day for is it time to get up to go to the airport? Is it time to pick up my kids or am I late for my appointment? Am I going to get to my destination? Those are all important and I don't want to minimize them. They are important. But overall, the right answer (laughs) to what time is it is it's time for the people of God to receive the power of God to accomplish the mission of God. think that's a great way to wrap up the year. That's what time it is. Well, thanks for being part of this special best of episode of Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Hope you enjoyed looking back at some of our memorable conversations from the past. And now as we look ahead to another year, Lord willing, of studying together, I'm pretty excited about what we have planned. We're going to be studying the Minor Prophets, That may not sound exciting, but I think you'll be surprised. We're also going to do a really helpful series about the Pharisees. And again, I think you'll be surprised. Also a fascinating week about shepherds and shepherding and the Good Shepherd with someone who spent a year with Bedouin shepherds in the Middle East. And I could go on, but just know that we have another good year of engaging the scriptures together ahead of us. And so for Marty Hahn and Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day and Rasul Berry, and of course all the other members of our Discover the Word team whose voices you never hear but are absolutely essential to what we do. I'm Brian Henning. Thanks for studying with us. Your chair at the table is the reason why we do this. We've loved having you along with us in 2023 as we've explored passages and topics that have informed the way we read the scriptures challenged us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and have always pointed us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Now we'll do more of that with you next time on the Discover the Word podcast. May the Lord bless you in 2024. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.